and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Michael Bungay-Stanier has worn many hats. He's a podcaster, he's an author, he's a coach, he's a teacher, he's a former Rhodes Scholar, and of all of these hats, he really talks about the power of writing in today's conversation and the power of coaching. So he writes about coaching. His books, including The Coaching Habit, have sold about a million copies. So he's pretty well known in the coaching world and the coaching space. And his books really try to simplify the tools, the techniques, and the skills needed to help people be their best. And I think you'll find that come across in today's conversation. Michael ultimately wants to help people make impact. He really is impact centric and he follows his heart when it comes to his decision-making process as far as what he does in his career. He founded a training and development company, which is called Box of Crayons, that has taught coaching skills to hundreds of thousands of people 
all over the world. In today's conversation, Michael, you're going to find him to be authentic, to be genuine. We'll talk about curiosity in today's conversation, and we'll really talk about the power of coaching, the power of leading, and how you can be your best. So here is Michael Bungay Stainer. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. There are a million ways we could start, but I thought I'd follow my curiosity to right. honor to honor your work. And what I was most curious about your work, it's not that deep of a question, but in your acknowledgement section, um, you have a in, in one of your books, you you put in the bio that you were you were involved in a small way in the invention of stuffed crust pizza uh, yeah. at Pizza Hut and. Coming from me in my childhood, eating a lot of Pizza Hut when I was a kid, I remember when stuffed crust pizza yeah. came out and it was, a, it was big. a big, big deal. Can yeah, you tell yeah. us a bit about that? I was, I just figured we'd start there. You know, I finished, univ- I spent too long at university. You know, I did a um, two undergraduate degrees combined in Australia, um, a, a BA, an arts degree in literature but also a law degree, which is an undergraduate degree in Australia and normally takes five years. And when you combine them together, it kind of takes six years. So I did, I did these two degrees. I was good at English literature, was terrible at law, but um, then when a, a scholarship that took me from Australia to England and Oxford to study. So I did another two year master's degree at, at Oxford, which was fun, but it means that now I'm at like eight years into university and I'm like, Oh, you know, what am I doing with my life? And I still didn't know. And so I was casting around for jobs in in England because I'd fallen in love with a woman and she was doing a PhD, so taking ages to finish that. And I ended up working for a company that did innovation. And this was in the early 90s. So it's kind of before innovation was a thing. Like nowadays, it's just part of the water we flow and we talk about innovation all the time but then i was like it's kind of hard to explain npd new product development and effectively what this company did was it would say to big companies you need to launch new stuff you suck at it we're better at it than you are hire us and we'll come up with the ideas for the products that you launch and you you take out into the world and it involved um a ton of market research kind of sitting with people who were the presumed buyers of the product um, going, you know, what's good and what's bad and what do you want? And, you know, what, how do you think about this? Which in itself was a really interesting discipline because you can't actually ask people what they want. You know, Henry Ford once said, if you ask people what they want, they just said a faster horse, not I need a car. Um, and I'm like, so you've got to come at it in a kind of sneaky sideways way. And then you got to go away and you got to have a bunch of ideas, concepts, and then you bring them back and you get an artist to draw them or a chef to make them and you test them. And there's this process of trying to figure out this is an unanswered need. This is a cool product. What if we launch that? And I spent five or six years there and I'm, you know, it's far enough in my past now, Brian, that I can say I didn't really launch a single successful thing in that entire time. Oh my goodness. It was brutal. Um, we did launch a whiskey called Loch Du for um, uh, Diageo, one of the big global spirits makers. Loch Du, if you look it up online now, it literally is a review that says, this is the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. <laughs> I'm like, yep, I, I played a role in that. 
And likewise for Stuff Crust Pizza, we were like trying to bring it into the UK. It'd been created in the US, but we're like, how do we find a way of redoing it and repositioning it and kind of selling it to the UK? So I was part of that exploration. Um, and it was actually me going, you know, Stuff Crust Pizza is actually something that people have heard of and they know about. And, you know, for some people in their childhood, they're like, that, 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 that was part of my childhood. I'm like, if this extremely minor role in stuffed crust pizza in the UK is the peak of my career. I have had a terrible, terrible, terrible career. I need to get out and I need to find something else to do. So it actually uh, precipitated me leaving that world and moving into the world of organizational change and organizational development and how do organizations grow and thrive and figure themselves out. Before we started recording, you talked about boredom and I get the sense in following you and researching you that you get excited by ideas, you pursue them and then maybe get bored. I mean, your background, there's a disruptor element to you. There's a podcaster, yeah. there's a writer, there's a scholar, there's an entrepreneur, there's a CEO, there's a hippie. Like there are all of these different <laughs> Australian, Canadian, like yeah. you're, you're kind of tricky teacher, speaker, coach. I mean, you've got like these different pieces yeah. to your identity that resonates with me. I find that I often get like really excited and dive into something. And then people look at me and they're like, oh, you're pivoting. I'm like, I'm not pivoting. I'm just exploring something new or exactly. I'm creating something different. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit how you see yourself as an innovator and how you think about your career mm. uh, in terms of that? It's a, it's a really helpful question and a nice way of framing it. There is one part of me absolutely that suffers from SOS, you know, shiny object syndrome. So I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Oh, I could do this or I could do that. And, you know, one of the things that is a strength of mine because it comes easily and it brings me joy as I do it is is having ideas. I'm I'm good at generating ideas. But I remember speaking to my friend Anton many years ago, and he's like, you know, the money is sticking with one thing. <laughs> And I'm like, no, don't pin me down. Don't fence me in. You know, some of this, Brian, comes from a, a, a kind of deep drive around freedom, which is like, I don't want to be fenced in. That's partly how I end up being an entrepreneur, which is like, I don't want to have a boss. I'm not good with bosses. I'm good with other people, but I'm not that great with bosses because I feel like they're they're kind of limiting me in some way. But, you know, somebody once said past... Uh, uh, inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. <laughs> when you look back and you're like, oh, none of this kind of makes sense when you kind of pile it all together. But if you string it together as a story, you can see how you start to emerge. So the way I think about it now is in a way of um, slightly more actively managing this experience is um, I acknowledge that I'm hungry to keep learning and growing. You know, in a, in a book I wrote last year called How to Begin, I say we unlock our greatness by working on the hard stuff. And so there's a hunger to unlock my greatness um, and keep trying to be the next best version of who I am. So that's a, a key part of the engine. And then I say my job is to take my best guess at the next big thing for me to work on. Hey, Michael, when you mean next big thing, what do you mean by that? Well, um, I'm really influenced by Kevin Kelly, 
who is a you know great writer and thinker and provo provocateur. And, and I remember reading at his website, kk.org many years ago about a death clock where statistically you can work out when you're likely to die. And I did this for me. I know statistically when I'm, I'm likely to die it's September 19, uh, 2043, I think. So I've got, you know, 20 some years left statistically. But here's the thing that really helped me with what Kevin Kelly said. He said, look, a big project takes about five years to do. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm trying to think in big projects and I'm trying to go, what's that big experience that I'm looking to, to build? So as an example, um, I have a, a small company called mbs.works. It's that's the, the URL as well, mbs.works, but it's about how do you help yourself and others unlock their greatness? I think it's a big project. Now, within that, there are somewhat smaller projects, which are like books to write and courses to design and a membership site to for people to kind of learn and grow. Those are kind of smaller projects within the bigger project of creating a self-sufficient space where people can be the best expression of their own selves and help others around them be the best expression of their own selves. And then at a certain point, I hope, I expect, I'll go, you know, I think my work here is done. <laughs> this is up, it's running, somebody's doing most of the work. My role here is to find the next big, big project for me to work on. And I'm curious about the idea of working on something versus working in something and how you know when it is time to say, all right, like I'm in this, I'm in it every day. Maybe I'm obsessed with it or I'm, you know, all yeah. in on it. And now I can empower or enable somebody else. Um, and, and what your relationship still looks like as you might be able to open doors or help them strategically think box of crayons, for example, uh, yeah. like how do you, how do you navigate that as far as still adding value to them, even though you might not be operating right. it from a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a generic answer to that. I mean, for for folks listening, I started a company 20 some years ago called Box of Crayons, and it's a training company. And it trains mostly the content that you find in my two most popular books, The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap. Three years ago, um, I'll come up to four years ago now, um, I stepped aside from being the CEO of that company. And it was pretty difficult because, you know, even though the brand was Box of Crayons, not Michael Bungay Stanya, I was still the DNA of that company. I was still the, the face of that company. Um, it, I designed that company. I kind of built it around my strengths and my weaknesses. And to, but it, it had become clear to me that I just wasn't that good a CEO. <laughs> you know, I, on two levels. One is not that motivated to be a good CEO, be not that competent and being a good CEO. It's just like pretty fatally bad combination. You're neither smart enough nor interested enough to do this job. And I was lucky to have somebody on the team, Shannon, who I was like, you have the potential to be a CEO. And we went through a two-year process where we made sure that I got extracted from Box of Crayons without coming back and meddling and kind of screwing it up and also giving her the autonomy and the power to, to be a great CEO. And happy to go deeper into some of that if if you're interested. Yeah, what but made what made her what what made her someone that A, you saw that potential in, and B, what did she have that you don't believe that that you had? Yeah. 
Well, she had uh um she held the responsibility her response she had the capacity to be responsible for the company and it's a um you know people talk about it as a, a founder's heart or a founder's mindset um most founders transitions are disasters because a founders are needy divas who have their DNA all over the company and they want to give up 93% of it, but they are desperate to keep meddling on the final 7%. Um, but secondly, a founder has always works harder than anybody else on their team because they like, it's their thing. I and mean, of course it's like they should be working harder than anybody else. It's it's that's what they're there to do. Um, or at least hold the responsibility for it in a way that other people don't. And Shannon is a extraordinarily smart. She has a PhD in literature and has just got this big brain. She's smart in the way that she thinks in patterns and she thinks in systems. So she is inclined to see the bigger picture. She has a fearlessness about sorting out the stuff that isn't working well. So some people kind of back away from that. She'll take a big breath and go, I'm going to step into the poke at the thing. She has an incredible capacity to learn and learn fast. So she's always hungry to keep learning. And she just is, um, she holds her responsibility as a company as a founder would. I get asked a lot of times, where did you find Shannon? <laughs> because she's an extraordinary woman, I think. And, you know, I found her behind the bar of my local pizza joint. She was serving behind the bar. She was finishing off her PhD. The pizza joint was one of her part-time jobs to fund her tertiary studies. And we just connected because we both studied literature. We talked about literature and we just found, and I just went, come and help me with this come and help me with a little bit of work. And it just kind of expanded from there. And you mentioned your challenges as a CEO. Where do you think you thrive? I, um, I have some, I have some skills that I'm really good at. Um, I am good creating and specifically making complicated stuff feel more accessible and practical for people. So, you know, if, if people know me at all, they know me for the coaching habit book, which has sold north of a million copies now. And I often say that book unweirds coaching for people. It just strips it down and makes a whole bunch of people who go, I don't know, coaching feels weird, touchy feely, HRE, huggy, lefty, whatever you want to say, and just go, Oh no, I understand if this is what coaching is, I could give that a crack. And I'm good at simplifying and I'm good at, thingifying, turning complicated concepts into things that people can grasp. So as an example of that, I gave, um, I have a TEDx talk called how to tame your advice monster. And I, I talk about these three advice monsters, these things, three things that keep showing up when you should be being curious, but you've kind of got this need to tell people what to do or what you think. And those three advice monsters are tell it, save it and control it. And in fact, you know, tell it, save it and control it are kind of three kind of ego states that, you know, you could go or psycho babbly on, but turning into your advice monster, people are like, Oh, I've got an advice monster. I get that. So I think, um, 
those are two kind of intellectual things that I'm good at. And then in terms of managing people, I'm really good at trusting them and um, encouraging them to, you know, uh, step towards the edge of what they're, what they're capable of and have the courage to take on the hard things. You mentioned curiosity, so let's dive into it. Yeah, There's sure. a quote that's all over your website, which is curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. <laughs> and I, I love that. <laughs> I love that quote too. Why, why do you think I have two kids? So when I think of insubordination, I think of my six-year-old and my seven-year-old. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, everyday insubordination, which is really healthy. Um, but I see them while they're having insubordination being highly, highly curious. And yeah. I, I still to this day have not been around a child who is not curious, but their parents tend to often lack curiosity when I'm around them. What do you think happens to us when we go from childhood to adulthood, where it seems as though our curiosity starts to get robbed? Well, um, I mean, I think other people have written about this in a more thoughtful, in-depth way than than I can. And I think in some ways you've already answered the question by just naming the question like that, which is something happens, right? We we um, we lose that ability to to be curious. Now, I suspect some of it is just biological in that, um, you know, there are phases where your brain just melts. <laughs> And is trying to figure itself out and is trying to build itself. And so there's a probably a biological imperative to say, keep being curious because that's how you form neural pathways. And, new, and your job at the moment is to form neural pathways, to get your brain to a certain state and then kind of melts again in the teens and kind of doesn't really come fully formed till mid-20s. And then the brain goes, look, we're set. And I suspect part of why we become less curious is we've just lost a biological imperative that says, keep figuring out how to make connections so you can figure out how to survive in this world. Because it probably means you've learned enough of the rules to figure out how to survive in the world. Because that's what the brain's job is. It's like, stay alive. Stay alive so you can have sex and you can pass your DNA on. That's that's why I'm hold, That's why I'm running this machinery called you. It's like, I need you to stay alive so you can keep passing that kind of whatever chromosomes of yourself on. So I think that's part of it, Brian. And then from that biological imperative, you also just have that societal imperative, which is like, you know what? It's ca capitalism works a whole lot better if people follow orders. And um, so, you know, there's a way of framing the experience of school as we're training you to be a knowledge worker. <laughs> There's a way of framing your first experience as a career, which is like, look, your job is not to ask dumb questions. It's just to get down and learn how to fit in around this. And so you have this tension between the societal imperative to say, we work best as a crowd. We best work best to fit in. And then this existential hunger we've got to go, well, how am I, how am I an individual? amongst that and then you end up with all of that at kind of monty python in your know, life of brian you know, you're all individuals yes we're all individuals i'm not you know you've got this kind of like parody and 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 humor around that so um it it i think it is 
a, a, a choice and a deliberate act to try and stay creative because there's a bunch of forces that are saying, if you don't want to be creative, that kind of makes it easier for all of us. I don't know why, but I hadn't even thought about the brain's role in it and how <laughs> we are designed to try to survive. And I'm thinking about the caveman, the cavewoman, and like how beneficial was curiosity for them in surviving? Well, well exactly. I mean, it's actively not. It's you know, not. There's, there's a wiring to your brain, which is to say, if you're the person who goes into the dark cave, there might be an upside to it, but the downside is significant. So we have the, we have a, you know, a lizard brain is all about stay alive <laughs> and, you know, probably don't go into the cave because better to miss out on the reward if you avoid the risk. So we've got some wiring around that. But that's kind of our evolutionary brain. But I, and I hadn't, I, this is the first time I've ever said this out loud because I hadn't thought of it until now. But I think there's just a way the brain is built that says the brain is built. So it's saying, be curious because this is how I, I build myself. And then at a certain point, it's like, I'm done. I'm set mostly. So everybody calm down. You don't need to be curious anymore because my brain, my brain is now the adult brain and it's going to be this way for the remaining 60 years of your life. Yeah, because what's going on for me right now as we have this conversation, I'm lighting up because I'm curious now about our, you know, our brain and our wiring and how it might get in the way of curiosity. Yeah. But where my brain then goes is like, okay, you figured it out instead of <laughs> staying curious on it. And right. like I like to connect dots. So I start connecting dots and I get energy and excitement yeah. from the dots connecting. And sometimes the dots connect to create an idea. And then I run with that idea, but I don't always stay in curiosity to continue to explore the learning, which is honestly why I struggled in school often. It's like, okay, I got it. Let's move on rather than really learning it, like deeply learning something. Right. You even mentioned earlier, like staying with something, focusing on something, becoming an expert at something. And that requires like deep, deep curiosity, like a next next level version. And, and patient, and, but also just patience as well and time. You know, I think you could argue that I've got a deep knowledge around coaching because I've kind of been writing about it and thinking about it for 20 years now. And I'm totally surprised about that. <laughs> you know, that is utterly not something that I would have necessarily predicted. Um, and I'm surprised that I, I, I continue to be interested in it. You know, there's plenty of stuff, as you pointed out in your initial question, where I'm like, oh, I've kind of gone from this to that, and this to the other. But they feel like there are some deeper rhythms that keep keep kind of beating away in the background that I kind of, I'm, I'm steadier on. You mentioned being an idea person, and that resonates with me. Yesterday, I had an idea around a kitchen table with a couple of friends. They're like, that's a brilliant idea. You should do that. <laughs> uh, but most of the time, people are telling me my idea sucks, and I'm an idiot. Um, so that was actually kind of refreshing to hear. Uh, but, but you have a quote as well where you say, curiosity is what keeps complacency at bay. What I'm curious about is as you get these ideas, as you start these businesses, as you do a TED talk, as you write a book, you've got another book coming out. Even yeah. before we started recording, I was like, man, oh man, writing one book was enough. I'm not sure I want to write another one. Yeah. Um, you're clearly active. Uh, yeah. You're someone who clearly 
you value achievement. Um, it's it's yeah. not that achievement is everything, but I think it's clear that you value achievement. You say, okay. hey, we sold over a million copies. We should be proud of that. I hear that yeah. in you. Um, what do you do to sustain? What do you do to make sure that as that death clock is is sort of chirping away in the, these last yeah. 20 years, that you're also taking time to be instead of always trying to become more and and grow yeah. and 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 learn and not and miss sort of the the rainbows and, and and the sunrises so to speak yeah wow well the first thing i'm going to just pick up on, on one thing you said right in the introduction to the question is that is a stupid idea i must be an idiot whereas i tend to go that's a stupid idea i'm not an idiot i've just had a stupid idea they're, they're very different things um i have is that what you say to yourself ideas. is that what you say to yeah. yourself when oh someone... yeah like i i just work on this i like i know i have a lot of bad ideas i mean I've, the I, I, you know, when I'm writing books, I'll often come up with ideas for books and I've got a little folder right next to me there called I, books for ideas, ideas for books. And I will put it on a scrap of paper and throw it in there. And then when I pull it out every six months or when I'm trying to come up with a new idea for a book, I most of them are ridiculous. And I'm like, yeah, but you know. Can we stay here bef before we go yeah. to the sustaining piece? Uh, yeah. Just to stay here, this is the selfish part of the podcast. So if you... <laughs> If someone says, Hey, I don't think that's a good idea, but you are convicted on it. Um, yeah. what do you do with the feedback that you're getting? Do you stay convicted? Do you get into curiosity mode? Like where do you where do you go from there? Well, um to be honest, most of the time my job is to name my own bad ideas. Um, in part because I, you know, I'm the boss in my company and even where um, I'm encouraging autonomy and freedom of thought, the way I show up, I, I'm just quite persuasive, even when my idea is a bad one. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm old, I'm white, I'm straight, I'm articulate, I'm passionate, I'm good at arguing. So most of the time I'm like, Michael, is this a good idea? And luckily my wife falls for none of this stuff. So she's like fantastic at kind of going, Michael, that's an, an idiotic idea. But I just, um, I just, I just think that you should work on the assumption that most of your ideas are not great. Like it's actually hard to come up with a really great idea. I always think that just putting ideas out in the world is just part of the process of getting closer to a good idea. And um, so I spend a, a certain amount of time framing to myself and to others, this probably isn't a good idea, but, and I hold it really lightly. Like I've just shared with a couple of friends of mine a first draft of a write-up of a of a collaborative thing that we're going to do. I'm like, it's a first draft. It's a shitty first draft. I, you know, I'm like, I please don't be delicate with your feedback. Let's dig into this and try and figure out if there's any good stuff in here. And, um, you know, one of the most, you know, the book How to Begin, I wrote, a year, came out a year ago. And, I shared a first draft of that book with friends and a bunch of them came back going, it's pretty good. And I had one friend, Misha, who came back going, it's really terrible. It's like, I don't even know what, I don't even know what the book is about. I mean, I tried to read it, but I could only get two thirds of the way through before I abandoned it. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I felt that. And it was the most useful piece of feedback. And I'm like, you know what? He's right. I need to pick through the rubble of this book and try and rethink it. Um, 
And, you know, as I think of my next book, I'm like, how do I find a truth, a speaker of truth so that somebody will just poke at this book in a way that will make it as good as it can be? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. your question. Yeah, but... I'll come back to it because I, I, yeah. I, I, it, it, and just to summarize that, there is something in there that you were giving me feedback on is like, just because you have a bad idea doesn't mean that you're bad at ideas. Like that's part of creating ideas right. is to sometimes have bad ideas. Right. Like if you have bad ideas, it means you're good at ideas because you've got the courage to kind of go, look, I'm just throwing out ideas because these things, good ideas emerge from the conversation from bad ideas. It's, it's just, and I just, there's also just not collapsing my identity with the ideas that I have. I'm like, here are my ideas. Here's me. Now, at the end of my e the emails I send people and something I believe, hold it up to you. I know people are not seeing this on video, but I've got this banner. Which is like, you're awesome and you're doing great. And I got it made because I tried it out in a, in a, in a course I was facilitating and people liked it. And then I put it on the end of my emails and people loved it. And I'm like, I fundamentally believe that I am awesome and I'm doing great. And that in no way precludes me from having stupid ideas and doing stupid things and feeling sad and angry and frustrated. But having a fundamental framing of the world which to, and, and of myself, which is I'm awesome and I'm doing great, is a very liberating, encouraging uh, engine to how I kind of see the world. I think of, I don't know if you follow sports, but Giannis Antetokounmpo, who plays for Milwaukee Bucks, just went viral because he tried to explain to a reporter, like, no, this isn't failure. This is part of the journey. This is part of the process. Yeah. Um, and I think some people struggled with that to understand where he's coming from. But I think he's saying, I'm awesome. I'm doing great. And I'm going to go back to the drawing board and figure out how I can yeah. continue to improve. And I'm going to use this and exactly. learn from it. Yeah, I mean, in another context, you know, I've heard people talking about CEOs. And I'm like, if as a CEO, because as a CEO, you should be only getting the hard decisions to make. And if like, if you're getting 60% of the hard decisions, right, you are rocking it. You are doing a brilliant job. <laughs> 60%. That means you're getting 40% of the hard decisions wrong. Um, but it's like, you know what, my job is to do the best I can. And when it doesn't work, go I did the best I could. I'm awesome and I'm doing the great. This is the best I could have done in the moment. Your coaching book, to me, it, it obviously focused on habits and yeah. brings habits and coaching and uh, tries to melt the two. But when you said CEOs, like, hey, 60% of your decision-making, and and that's really a big part of your job. I'm thinking about the book and it, it to me, it was largely geared towards managers and people yes. that are managing people and a CEO can certainly have direct reports and manage people. It's interesting though, because we always hear CEOs talk about the power of listening and yeah. asking questions. And your book certainly hits on that from a leadership standpoint. I find one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is that a CEO's job is also to make decisions and deal with that 40% of mistakes and own them. And we don't right. always talk about leaders that your job is also to say, all right, I've got all this information. Now I'm going to be willing and be bold and brave and courageous enough to actually make the decision. And if we're right, probably give credit to those that help me be right. And if we're wrong, probably saying, Hey, that was my bad. I led us in yeah. the wrong direction. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. What's your view on leadership as far as decision-making and speaking? You up? said it better than I could have. You know, I, 
Um, and you know, this is my own learning edge as well, which is like, I'm just trying to make hard decisions faster and going, look, it's a, if it's a hard decision, you don't really know. I, I sit, I sit with the phrase, it's my best guess quite a lot because it acknowledges that it's a guess, but it also acknowledges that this is after I've thought about it, after I've listened, after I've had input, after I've molded over a bit, I'm taking my best guess. And as something to aspire to, have I taken my very best guess here? I have been great decision made and it'll either work or it won't work. And if it works, we go down this path. And if it doesn't work, then I've got another decision to make. So, so it goes. So a couple of questions ago, we were going to talk about sustainability. So I'm going to get yes. to that in this question. Hopefully I'll weave it in. Okay. Uh, but there's a question that that starts off the coaching habit about uh, what's on your mind? This Kickstarter yeah. question that coaches can use to give people space to really share what's on their mind. And so I'm curious to take that into a different lens, which is yeah. for you, what's typically on your mind? Um, so is it is it teaching? Is it speaking? Is it writing? Is it the businesses? Is it the next big thing? And I'll tell you for me, the reason I was asking about the sustainability question is this year, 2023, for me was the first year where I said, you know what? I'm actually going to take a step back from growth and I've got two small kids. I want to be involved with their sports teams. I want to go to their dance recitals. I want to be yeah. home for dinner. I don't really want to travel right now. Um, I don't want to miss these moments. And, and yet I find myself being excited by an idea and excited by an opportunity. And I wrestle with, yeah. you know, what's on my mind and where to, where to focus my attention as I currently sit here today. So I'm curious for you, like, what usually dominates your mind? Is it the decision-making stuff that we were just talking about? Is it writing? Is it the other parts of your identity? Yeah. What, what tends to, to fill your mind? Um, what? Ten, so the big project that I'm working on at the moment, the, the one that matters most to me is an identity project. And it is me becoming a writer. Now, I'm already an author because an author is somebody who has written books, but a writer is somebody who orients themselves to claim writing as a central part of who their identity is. And so every morning I, I have a little journal that I check in with. I've got three questions that I ask myself at the start of each morning. I go, what do I notice? So that's just a question designed to help me be present to what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking or what I'm seeing just kind of put me in the moment to say what is going on because you know I'm a heady sort of guy and I'm often kind of thinking of stuff out in the future this kind of pulls me back to the moment what am I noticing second what am I grateful for because that's just one of those questions that you know the, if there's a silver bullet question this is it in terms of how to have a happier life which is like keep noticing the stuff that you should be grateful for and then the third thing is what's the one thing that today needs to get done. So there's a way that I check in that. And then what, at the start of each week, I go this week, what are the two or three things that I need to get done this week to make it a successful week? But all of that's in the context of I'm trying to become a writer. So I, it is helpful for me to have what I call a worthy goal, that bigger picture goal, which is like, this is the game. This is the big game I'm trying to play for the next little while, becoming a writer. And then what comes with that is 
another question from the coaching habit book, which is like, if I'm saying yes to this, what do I have to say no to? And, um, you know, I call it the strategic question because actually that's what strategy is. That's kind of what kind of links back to CEOs making hard decisions, which is, look, if you're saying yes to something and you're saying it wholeheartedly and wholebrainedly and kind of with full commitment, then you not only have to say no to the obvious you not only have to say no to the obvious stuff, you have to say no to the stuff you still kind of want to do. <laughs> and so if I was sitting with you, I'm like, if I'm saying yes to be present to my children in these coming years, I'm not only saying no to the, the crappy work stuff that I never wanted to do in the first place, I'm saying no to acting on the ideas that get me excited. Because I've said to my, because I've said yes to working no more than thirty hours a week. So it means I'm saying yes to podcasting ten hours a week, consulting ten hours a week, writing ten hours a week. It means I'm saying no to leaving the house to go give a speech, even though I love giving speeches. I love it. I've chosen to 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 make that choice, and it kills me every time I say no, because I because I want to do that but I've just got clearer on my bigger yes. How will you know when and if you become a writer? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know. Um, I'd say that I am part the way there in that I'm writing and creating more than I ever have. Um, so that feel, feels part of it. But Brian, I'll show you this. People listening are just going to have to imagine this. Here's my pile of books on the floor that I'm, I haven't yet read. <laughs> and I think, um, part of being a writer is being a great reader. And I have lost some of my skill about being a reader. I used to be a brilliant reader. I used to read a ton. I used to love it. I used to immerse myself in books and I don't do that as much now. And so there's part of me going, how do I become that, that reader again, so that I can be a writer. And, you know, just this morning, as I was checking in with my journal, and I was like, what's the one thing? And then just writing a bit more about stuff. I'm like, what if next year, my only project was to write one book? That feels like a really interesting challenge, because now I'm going, I'm not going to give speeches, I'm not going to run online webinars. I'm just going to devote a whole year to a, a deeper dive into a, a particular book that I'm imagining right now. I'm going to make that my central project. What needs to be true? This is a Roger Martin question, which I love. What needs to be true for that to happen? And I love that question, what needs to be true, because it takes you to the, the thing you're imagining and it makes you start working back going, what decisions would I have to make? What what environment would I have to set up? What would I have to say yes to? What would I have to say no to? So I'm not sure, you know, it's like, it's, it's an emerging thing. But if you ask me, would you claim to be a writer now? I'm like, not yet. Getting closer, but not yet. All right. So I'm having a hard time turning off my coaching mind. It's like, <laughs> where are you on that, that truth? Where are you on going toward that process to, to make that true? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I know that I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm moving forward on it rather than moving back on it. So I'm like, 
the way the way I would talk about it is I am trending in the right direction. And what excites you about becoming a writer? Because in the past, I had heard and read that you really moved from coach to teacher and that you were excited about being a teacher and moving away yeah. from coach. I'm hearing, and maybe you went from teacher to speaker. I don't know where you're yeah. at in that sort of identity labeling, but like, how do you think about that as far as transitioning from one focal point to another? I, I think of all the things that I do, writing is a thing that I, I, is the most distinctive expression of me as a teacher and has the highest opportunity for me reaching people. So, um, so it feels like my ongoing commitment to being a teacher, which I think still is there writing and being a writer is potentially the best expression of what that is. And which of those is easiest for you to do? Well, um, I, I would say that there are different modalities by which you teach. You know, you can be a speaker, you can, you can design courses, you can be a writer, you can be a YouTuber. Um, like I, I'm a, I'm, a good facilitator, I'm a good speaker, I'm a good course designer, I'm a good writer. So all of those play the strengths of mine. I'm a terrible YouTuber and social media influencer because I'm like, I just don't care enough to to, to do that. Um uh I'm a good I'm a good podcast host, I think. Like I think I ask good good questions around that and I use that as a way of me learning fueling my teacherness so how do i keep growing um yeah but i'm i'm but i think of but in terms of course design and speaking and facilitating i know there are other people who deliver at the same high level i do in terms of writing i think i write in a way that is different from almost anybody else how so i I uh, forgive me for going on about my natural brilliance around here, but um, well, we no. all, well, Michael, I think we all like if we were to bring the audience into this, I think we all have like a genius inside of us or a gift inside yeah. of us. Not that we all can do anything that we want in this world, I don't really believe yeah. in that, but I think we all have something or spark inside yeah. of us that we need to nurture and, and figure yeah. out what about our nature we want to water and, and nurture. And so, what I'm yeah. gathering from you is like, all right. I think the best medium for me to make an impact and to potentially share my ideas is, is through yeah. writing is, is sort of what I'm starting to hear from you. Yeah. So I, um, primarily it comes back to this. I'm good at taking complex abstract ideas and simplifying and thingifying them. I'm good at holding it lightly. So there's this humor in my books. Um, I'm good at, writing the shortest book I can. <laughs> so having a discipline to keep going, how do I make this shorter and more accessible and more practical and more friendly and more usable for people? And I think I, I wield a pretty decent metaphor at times. So I think that's what I might guess would be the distinctive attributes of my writing, but you've read some of my stuff. What, how would you, 
<laughs> Look, we had we had we had Laura Gassner outing on last yeah. week, and she brought you up in the podcast and did not know that I was talking to you this week. And I'm very careful to mention in previous podcasts who's coming on next week because yeah. it doesn't always happen and then it gets tricky and weird. Uh, but thank you for being here. I'm glad that you're here. Me too. Uh <laughs> but uh, you know, I think both of you, and I know you you've done stuff together, yeah, are yeah. genuine in the way that you write. And I think you probably push back on traditional writing models or ways in which you write. And to me, I think what separates you from other people is the willingness to be you and to not be afraid to do things in a way that you think people will understand, but that you also understand. And right. so I think simplifying it, there's there's some humor in there. You're not afraid to be self-deprecating. Um, and I think Laura is unabashedly Laura. And so, yeah. and I, I would probably say that for most great writers, but I, like Malcolm Gladwell is going to write differently than you are. And I don't think you're yeah. trying to be in competition with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, right. And Dan Pink's going to have his style of writing and exactly. uh, Brene, you know, mentioned Brene Brown. I mean, like the way she can thread words together in a Texan way is just, I don't want to compete with that. Like, I, no, exactly. and I'm not to say it's a competition, but I think when we get into, oh, I need to be like someone else, we yeah. we lose our voice and it doesn't land with people as much. So I can hear your voice when you write, which I think is the ultimate compliment to a writer. Well, thank you. And and you know, for people listening in, you know, there's that that form of finding your voice by writing through other people's voices. So when you read my book you know i started i wrote my first newsletter when i was 17 so that is 40 some well almost 40 years ago <laughs> me starting to try and figure out what my voice was um and i've tried to write like seth godin and i've tried to write like austin cleon and i've tried to write like malcolm gladwell and i've tried to write like dan pink and i've tried to write like susan kane you know all of those people and and plus fiction writers like I literally have a master's degree in literature. So um, I've tried to go, oh, how does, you know, how does Isabella Allende, you know, write about this? Um, so it's, I, I've, I've written, uh, who knows how many thousands of words I've written, like a, a large number of words in the ongoing quest to go, this is actually the best way to hear my voice in my writing. So just like, um, artists used to go and sit and probably still do go to art museums and they sit and they try and draw the the Rubens or the Vermeer to go, how do they do that? What's the, how did they create that as a way of going, how do I create stuff? It's part of the discipline and the apprenticeship and the, the, the 10,000 hours as, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. Um, well, if we go if we go to Australia and go to 17 year old Michael and he's, he's writing that first newsletter and you showed him everything that you've done up until now, uh, what would 17 year old Michael say to you? I don't know. Like 17 year old Michael has, um, was always pretty confident <laughs> in himself. Like I'm awesome and I'm doing great. Turns out to be kind of a, a deeply embedded way of framing the world for me. So there's that. But, you know, as a 17-year-old, it's impossible to imagine the life of a 50-year-old. So probably like, well, that's 
great, but whatever. <laughs> um, and he probably would miss the level of contentment I have with my life. Um, as opposed to the, I've got some books. Like I have a, I have a grandmother. Part of the the um, seed of being a writer was planted by having a grandmother who was a writer. And I remember in my teens going, you know, I admire that. I admire that she writes a column for her local newspaper. That she's published books. That she got books in a house that I can see. That that's that's kind of cool. But you know, writing the books is just. Um, in the end, it's like, do you have a life lucky enough where you're involved in a process where the the process feels like um, you're trying to figure out the, the, the best type of problems? You mentioned contentment. What's the distinction for you between contentment and complacency? Hmm. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just complacent. Maybe you've, <laughs> you've nailed it. Um, I, I I suspect it's it's just an active engagement where you go, you know, who am I? What am I doing in this world? Have I taken my best guess? I think if you're content, you can say I've taken my best guess. I suspect if you're complacent, you don't often ask yourself, am I taking my best guess? I like that. I think that's that's powerful. Back to your grandma, my dad is is absolutely, he's not an author, but he's a writer and yeah. he's a journalist by trade. And it's interesting because I never really actively thought about that he didn't publish a book. Uh, but my dad's uber successful in a lot of other areas of his life and people would deem him to be successful from the outside. And yeah. being his son, I would deem him to be successful from, from the inside as well. Right. And- and I am now thinking about like author versus writer because I don't I don't call myself an author even though I've written a book. I yeah. I mean I understand in my bio someone will call me an author, but I don't really think of myself that way. I write, but author to me is as a it's it's a strong word. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm wondering like maybe what's the hang up on for both of us for, for really taking ownership of that. Like I'd imagine you have no problem with someone calling you a speaker or a coach or a teacher. Like those words, those words, yeah. you're not fighting. You're not. Um, I, yeah. I, I can't, I care less about how other people, what other people call me. Like if other people want to call me a writer, right. Or a speaker or a coach or whatever. I'm, I hold me becoming a writer just as a, uh, a way of articulating the growth I want to be having, how I want to keep emerging and challenging and pushing myself. So it's, it's less, it's less a label about what I've accomplished and it's more a statement of intention around who I'm trying to become. And then back to that sustaining question, when you're not becoming, what are you doing to be? Well, it is an interesting question because there is certainly a part of me that quite loves the work that I do. And I have some concern about me becoming, you know, the most boring man in the world because all I get to do is work. But, you know, my, my wife is a little older than I am and has retired. And she will say to me occasionally, 
why don't you retire too? Because look at the great life I'm having here in Toronto. And she is having a great life. She does online training. She goes to real things. She goes for walks with her friends. She hangs out with her friends. She does ukulele classes. She does language classes. She's got this rich, local, active, engaged life of being and doing, which is amazing to watch. And it doesn't hold that much interest for me. Some of that does, but um, um, I, in, in some ways, I, I, I will sometimes say, look, it's like I am retired. I just happen to be doing this stuff as part of my my retirement because I feel like I'm pretty fully at choice in terms of how I spend my time and how I direct direct my attention. The thing that I am working on around the being is community. So um, I am, I, I've come to know a fair number of people, but I don't really know many people at all. And I'm trying to be a person here in Toronto who, who invites and gathers people together. People I'm interested in meeting, but also people who might like to meet each other as well. So that is, you know, I, I, I host an occasional dinner where it's me plus two other people who are like slightly randomly thrown together. Um, and I will bring five questions to the table and we will introduce each other by going, tell us two essential things about who you are. And that's quite a rich conversation right away, because when you say you only can tell me two essential things about who you are, it's like, what's essential <laughs> about who I am? So that immediately gets beyond the usual presentation of here's my job and here's my family and, you know, all that kind of normal stuff. It's like, give me something more essential than that. And then I'll have five questions, which are all designed to help a conversation get a little deeper. And the first person picks a question like, what's the crossroad I'm currently at? And they will answer it. And then the, 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 the other person and then I will answer it as well. And then the second person picks one of the four remaining questions. You know, what's, what's the burden it's finally time to put down? And they'll answer it. And then the other person will answer it. Then I will answer it. And that's, that's an evening. We've had dinner by getting through that. And that feels like a deeper conversation about stuff that really matters. So that sense of trying to build community and connection through curiosity, I think is part, one of the ways that I'm, I'm, you know, not just answering email all day. Is that new for you out of, out of COVID or is that something you did prior to the pandemic? Um, it's, the first version of that was something that I started in the pandemic. It's called Cocktails and Questions. And so I'd have five people join online and we'd have a single question that I had chosen and everybody had six minutes to answer that question, six uninterrupted minutes. And so it was quite powerful for people just to talk about a question that was designed to open things up for six minutes without interruption. And we'd, we check in and we'd all answer the question and then we check out. And so now in person, is it, is it, is it more effective? Is it similar? Is it different with those, with three of you? It's, it's different in person feels a little bit more like, um, deepening a friendship amongst with me and the two people at the table. 
um the one online felt a little more like introducing interesting people to each other but didn't quite have the time and with five people there was only so much time it, it was more people saying here's an interesting version of who i am rather than a chance of real connection and dialogue um there's a, a book that came out recently called the two hour cocktail party which i'd really recommend so i've been hosting two hour cocktail parties as well by a guy called nick gray and then it's like 15 people they come for two hours on a tuesday or a wednesday night and i have three questions that i ask over the three hours and everybody gets into a circle and everybody answers the question in a sentence or two and then they break up and they go off and have conversations and they come back together and there's another question so it's another way of using questions and conversations to help people connect and help me connect with other people it's interesting because i've always been a connector you started before you even started recording by giving me three recommendations of people <laughs> that i should try to reach out yeah. to. I get the sense you're a connector too. And for my whole life, I've been able to build community around me. Like I'm pretty elite at it. Uh, I would say like, I am yeah. someone who loves to bring people together. I think I'm pretty inclusive in how I do it. Um, but you're making me think about the intentionality with which I do it. And that I think I need a refresher on. Um, yeah. And I've hosted retreats and, and, when you said crossroads earlier, like my favorite retreats are bringing together. We, we did one called the intersection retreat where we brought together sport leaders and thought leaders, so to speak. And we had them share uh, their perspectives. I'm about to host another one with blacks and Jews where they come together and share their perspectives and connect with each other and learn. Oh, nice. And so I, I love the power community, but the one thing I haven't really figured out i think i could be so much better at it. how do you sustain it and how do you continue those relationships in an organic way and that's the piece that i find to be difficult is how do you stay connected it, it is difficult um particularly if you're a person who is a connector so you know a bunch of people it's actually impossible to stay in touch with everybody really so i'm experimenting with um my contact list and um, you might have heard of a guy called Dunbar, Dunbar's number. He sort of says, look, 150 people are the total number of friends you can really hold. Um, and then within that 150, there are different gradations, really close friends and so on. I structure my contact list. They're either D15, D50, uh, D150 and then sphere. And I, I, so D, D15 are like, these are my 15 people to go to. They're my kind of close. They're the people I don't mind calling up in the middle of the night going help. Um, D50 are people who I'm like, you are an important friend to me. D150 is like, you know what? If I talk to you twice a year and hang out with you twice a year, that's great. Um, and then there's everybody else. And what what this um, contacts CRM thing allows me to do is name how often I want to be in touch with the different types of people. So it just helps me make choices to say, can't be in touch with everybody. So who are my 15 people that I want to be in touch with once a month? And then how do I be in touch with them? And then who are my 50 people who I'd like to be in touch with two or three times a year? 
And how do I do that? And then who are my 150 people where one or two times a year would be great. And then the rest, I don't worry about so much. So I, I more actively try and set up systems to nudge me to be better in touch with the people with whom I've chosen to be in touch with. And that's a good place for us to start to wind down. It's a nice transition. If you're talking about who do I be in touch with? Is it everybody? Is it the top 15? Is it 150? Yeah. Your next book's called How to Work with Almost Anyone. <laughs> so there's yeah. a lot of intrigue there as far as what almost anyone means. Yeah. Um, can you give us a brief, uh, a brief teaser on what the book is about, why everyone yeah. should buy it in June? Uh, and I'm, I'm just curious to learn more about the book. Yeah. So I'll give people a URL right off the top, bestpossiblerelationship.com. Um, you, you can find out more about this. But the starting point is a recognition that the quality of your working relationships make all the difference between your happiness and your success or your unhappiness and your lack of success. And most of the time, we cross our fingers and hope for the best in terms of our working relationships. We're, we're optimistic about it, but I can promise you every working relationship goes off the rails a little bit somewhere down the line. So how do you build the best possible relationship with the key people with whom you work? And for me, a best possible relationship is one that is safe, one that is vital, meaning full of life, kind of stretches people and grows people and has adventure and also repairable, meaning that when it gets dented or cracked, you know how to fix it. And the book offers up a suggestion, a type of conversation to have, a keystone conversation where you like talk about how you'll work together before you talk about what you'll work on. Because when you do that, you have a chance to build a relationship that has the opportunity of being more safe, more vital, and more repairable. The repairable piece is especially interesting to me just because I think relationships have been in flow. And I've had lifelong friends. I live in the same area I, I grew up in. Uh, I'm different from you in, in that way. And so there are people in my life that have been in my life uh, for a very, very long time. And uh, I think everybody deals with that in some sense in their families, uh, yeah. whether it's their parents or their siblings or their aunts or their uncles or their cousins. Yeah. And how do they want to make sure that those relationships are repairable? Give us one thought on on how we can go about doing that well one of the questions in the keystone conversation is called the bad date question which is like when you've had a relationship that sucked in the past what happened what did you do about it and you know brian you'd answer that oh working with this guy in this type of relationship this is why it didn't work and i go well i've worked with somebody like you and this is why it didn't work and you just start noticing what are the things that might take this relationship, you know, off the rails into a, into a dark corner somewhere. And that already is powerful because it says, look, we, we've already got a better clue around how we might manage that. But the, the real secret in this book, I think, is in, when you have a keystone conversation, conversation about how you'll work together rather than what you'll work on, you're giving each other permission to talk about the health of the relationship. So it means that when things get a bit off, you're able to come back and go, Brian, I don't know, <laughs> something's feeling a bit off here, or here's why I'm frustrated, or here's how I, this is the thing I want to sort out. You've got permission to come back and have a conversation about repairing. 
Now, the fifth question of the five is how will we fix it when things go wrong? So you can actually make this a really explicit thing. You know, I remember with a, a past boss of mine, we gave each other to have what is called an off our, off your chest conversation. And when you're like, like Brian, I've got something to say, I try to get it off my chest. You know that it's my chance to vent and your job to listen and not get too reactive about it. And that framing, it's an off my chest conversation, allowed the other person to know how best to manage their own feelings that would come up during that. Yeah, it's a trigger. And you talk a lot about triggers and how those impact habits. I'm going to close by just acknowledging the values of your company, Box of Crayons. And I don't know if these were established when you were there or, or after you left, but I thought that they were helpful for our audience to hear. Uh, so the values were stay curious longer, be generous, pursue elegance, cultivate adult to adult relationships and practice stewardship. And for me, I love these values because A, they're not one word. Uh, I think sometimes people put one word values and they lack nuance and they lack Agreed. depth. Um, yeah. And then two, they just, there's a, there's a diversity that exists within those values that were really nice. There's practice, there's cultivate, there's pursue, there's be, and there's stay. Like there, yeah. there is real action that exists within those values. And as I'm talking to you and getting to know you for the first time today, uh, while you may not be in box of crayons every day anymore, you're still part of the packaging that exists yeah. there. And uh, for that, I'm grateful that I got to spend some time with you. If people want to learn more about you, what you're up to, the book, where should we direct them? Yeah. Look, the book is Best Possible Relationship. And for me, mbs.works, which is a URL. And there you really get to see all sorts of resources and stuff around how to unlock your greatness and how to unlock other people's greatness. Beautiful. On social media, which Michael said he's like not a social media influencer, but I'll tell you, he's on Instagram. Uh, they're posting videos. And, not uh, me. I have, I have a small team that does all of that brilliant <laughs> stuff for me. They do a pretty good job, I think. Um, that's at MBS underscore works. Thanks for that, Brian. Beautiful. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson and Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being you and looking forward to connecting with you sometime soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It is helpful for me to have what I call a worthy goal, that bigger picture goal, which is like, this is the game. This is the big game I'm trying to play for the next little while, becoming a writer. And then what comes with that is another question from the coaching habit book, which is like, if I'm saying yes to this, what do I have to say no to? You know, I call it the strategic question because actually that's what strategy is. That's kind of what kind of links back to CEOs making hard decisions, which is look, if you're saying yes to something and you're saying it wholeheartedly and whole-brainedly and kind of with full commitment, then you not only have to say no to the obvious stuff, you have to say no to the stuff you still kind of want to do. 